Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thank you for doing that. You're the reason we do these, the 50,000 of you or so who download it weekly. We have a great guest for you today. Joseph Alton, who's a physician, his wife is the co-author of the book, The Survival Medical Handbook. It's an essential guide for when help is not on the way, is in its fourth edition. And I am sure that our sponsors, both the longevityplaybook.com and lifesfirstnaturals.com, lifesfirstnaturals, the makers of bovine colostrum and true biotics, two things that have randomized controlled trials, you can see them on the website to show how beneficial they are, would both endorse this book because it is, if you will, the answer to when help really isn't on the way. The website associated with it is doomandbloom.com. If a disaster took the high-technology we take for granted away. Would you and your family be prepared? What should you do? What should you have as medical guide? And should you have your a generator, a battery backup? How does Dr. Alton feel about having one of the electronic vehicles powering your home or other things as part of the doom, if you will? So his website is, in fact, doomandbloom.com. Dr. Alton, thanks very much for coming on. How did you happen to write this, the first edition of this? Well, I'll tell you, I've been interested in disaster medical preparedness for quite some time. I've volunteered in the past for disaster medical assistance teams with uh, Hurricane Andrew all the way back in 1992. I would have to say that it was probably Hurricane Katrina in 2005 that I felt that it was time to identify what to do in circumstances where the ambulance might not be just around the corner. Now, in Hurricane Katrina, that was my my first time that I really felt that there was an issue and you need and we needed to have the ability to prepare for different kinds of disasters. Now, let me just interrupt you. You're a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist, a pelvic surgeon doing major operations. Were you in Florida at the time, or were you in Louisiana at the time of Hurricane Katrina? Yes, I was in Florida for Hurricane Andrew and also in there for Hurricane Katrina. I ended up not being used in Hurricane Katrina, but I did happen to see what happens when the ambulance isn't just around the corner. Now, not that we didn't have hundreds of medical personnel converging on the Gulf Coast and a lot of high-tech technology, and that was going on even before the storm was completely through but the providers and the technology were just not able to get to people due to flooding. And with hurricanes, it's flooding that separates people from medical help. But any type of disasters could do that. An earthquake, for example, could make roads impassable. Really, uh, any disaster with enough casualties can overwhelm the existing medical infrastructure. And so from my standpoint, I had hoped that if I can reach the average person and teach them how to deal with injuries and illness, put some supplies in their hand, that some tragic outcomes might be avoided even if they cannot reach high medical technologies. And so I began writing with this kind of mindset. 
So you'll enjoy how my wife and I prepared. We lived in California, in San Francisco, and always feared the earthquake, if you will, but set up so that we could live a month, if you will, without food, water, et cetera, had it in our house and emergency medical supplies. I, I'm both an anesthesiologist and an internist. I wanted to run an ICU and actually was doing so at that time. So we decided we would have a day where we wouldn't use, we assumed that electricity and gas were off, that we had nothing, and we went down into our emergency area, which was the safest area in our home, we thought. And when we tried to, when we had, you know, a propane tank and we had a small propane tanks, not nothing that would explode. And we had charcoal, et cetera. And, and we decided to try and start and do it for uh, three days over a three day weekend. And we got there. And of course, the thing we had forgotten, we didn't forget a wine opener, but we forgot a can opener. So most of our food was in cans, and we couldn't do a darn thing. So we had to postpone it for uh, several months till we had another three-day weekend. But one of the essentials is a can opener. You're absolutely right. The problem is that people sometimes think that their electric can opener will suffice, and you just have to have the manual can opener. You're talking about the three-day challenge, and that is a, a classic preparedness uh, exercise. And uh, uh, it's something that uh, is a big challenge, especially for the younger members of the uh, family. Now, what's the difference between preparing for a earthquake versus a hurricane versus some other natural disaster? The things we think about in the United States, of course, are hurricanes and earthquakes. What else should we be thinking about? Well, you, I think that the main difference is water. I mean, you wind up having with hurricanes and floods, things like that, you have a lot of issues with water and you have a, a lot of concerns about the, what's happening to your water supply. I mean, many times water treatment plants are, are flooded. You may wind up with very bad water. So what you need to do is you need to be able to deal with disinfecting water, and there are a number of different ways that certainly you can do that. Of course, boiling water is the original. A good roiling boil for one minute will usually take care of things at sea level and three minutes at 6,000 feet because of the atmospheric pressure changes. But then you have other types of disasters like, let's say, wildfires or earthquakes, as you mentioned. With all of these, roads can become impassable. So they're the same that way, but in other ways, what you have is essentially different kinds of injuries that you may wind up having to take care of. Of course, with wildfires, it's burns. There's a lot of trauma associated with earthquake injuries, related injuries. And so you have to really be very clear as to how you're going to deal with trauma if you are in areas that are, let's say, like where you are, that are prone to earthquakes. You need to be able to handle trauma, and you need to be able to know what to do when the tremors begin. Yeah, actually, I'm at the Cleveland Clinic now and live in Cleveland, so we have much less in worry about both things, but still have a emergency supply. And now, actually, the, one of the interesting things is we have 30 days worth of bottled water for a family of four. We're actually only two people, 
and a generator, if you will. But the generator is dependent on the gas from the, I suppose it's the gas from the gas company rather than a local propane tank. So tell us, and one of the things you do in this book so beautifully is go through the medical things and sanitation like you did. When we have bottled water for 30 days, how long should we be or how often should you rotate it or how often should you refresh it? Well, let's think about what we're talking about. We have we have two people that need, let's say, maybe a gallon of water a day for their basic needs. And if, if you don't have access to water that you can disinfect in other ways, then you're dealing only with bottled water. Yeah, I guess it would depend on what the size of your bottles are. So we have six gallons for each day for 30 days, 180 gallons. Let's put you in the top 1% of preparedness folk with regards to your water supply. I think that that's actually good. You know, most people have maybe a week's worth or three, three days worth, actually, the average person that doesn't consider preparedness at all. Most people that are even, even in the preparedness field will probably have enough for a couple of weeks because usually they figured out some other source of water that they would be able to use and use various disinfection methods, boiling or, or bleach, things like that. We should tell listeners there are over 300 chapters, 300 pictures, and I'll just run through a few of them. Allergic reactions and anaphylaxis, minor wounds, burns, bleeding trauma, major wounds, chest trauma, chest seals, chest tubes, needle decompression, open wound care, wound closure, patient transport, pregnancy and childbirth. One of the most interesting ones, I think, is what essential over-the-counter medications and pain medications should you have at home? Do you want to go into that a little bit? It is a full section. I think it's section 34 in this wonderful book, The Survival Medical Handbook. Again, where you can look at more information is doomandbloom.com. And this is really an essential, even for physicians, I would consider this an essential book to have and to keep there as long as you've got some light. And I, and I do want to get into something about light use in a few minutes. But talk to us a little bit about what are the essential over-the-counter medications. I think that you definitely want to have the ability to treat pain. You want to be able to have the ability to treat fevers. So there you have your ibuprofen, you have your, your acetaminophen. Of course, there are always GI issues, again, with bad water, for example. So perhaps loperamide might be a good choice. Uh, Pepto-Bismol also. So loperamide is, a, is something that stops diarrhea. It slows the GI tract. That's right. But also things like Pepto-Bismol or bismuth salicylate, that is also, it's now considered to be a, a standard to prevent things like traveler's diarrhea. And so that's another option. And I think it's a, an important medication to have. With regards to skin issues, of course, you want to have antibiotic ointment. You want to have burned gels, maybe aloe vera. We talk about a lot of situations where you're actually away from modern medical help for the long haul. And so perhaps growing aloe plants, if you can do that in your area, might not be a bad idea so that you have some of these natural products that can actually have some medicinal benefits. 
Other ones for respiratory issues, bifedicin, I think, are a good choice. I think that pseudoephedrine is good. I'm sure you've heard about phenylephrine now being considered by an FDA panel recently to be actually no better than a placebo. And that's important because there are over 100 brands in the United States that contain phenylephrine as an ingredient in a combination medicine, things like Theraflu and Robitussin. If you have these things that are Robitussin congestion in sinus or Theraflu cold and flu, you know, you're dealing with uh, medications now that might not be effective for what you need them to do. So if you want a good nasal decongestant, I would go to pseudoephedrine. Right, which is which is often called Sudafed. But if you're going to get the Sudafed brands, make sure you get it with pseudoephedrine and not phenylephrine. Because some of the brands in each of these standard, if you will, names, Robitussin, etc., therefore, some of them have phenylephrine and not pseudoephed. You're right. And with even Sudafed itself is has a brand that is phenylephrine. And that is, as you mentioned, which is Sudafed PE. Now, if you're getting Sudafed PE, that's phenylephrine. So definitely you want to go behind the, ask the pharmacist. They have it right behind the counter. It is something that is well documented because it is used in the making of, Pseudoephedrine is used in the making of methamphetamine, as you know. Now, one of the things you, you have so well is what do you do about rotating or outdating or the expiration date on these? Yes, you know that expiration dates didn't exist until, or at least they weren't required until the year 1979. And they're basically just the, the last date that the company that manufactures the product will guarantee its full potency. The interesting thing about that is that our government has a strategic medical stockpile, and the strategic medical stockpile has all of these medicines, over 120 medicines that are used in uh, emergency situations, national emergency situations. And what happened is they would buy tens of millions of dollars worth of a particular medicine, and whenever the expiration came by, well, they got out the forklift and they threw away tens of millions of dollars. Even FEMA and the Department of Defense began to say, you know, this might be, well, a little wasteful. And so they actually did a study, and the study is known as the Shelf Life Extension Program. And the Shelf Life Extension Program identified most of the medications that they had, as the ones that were in pill or capsule form, this didn't apply to, to liquid medications, actually were good anywhere from 2 to 12 years beyond their expiration date. Some of the lots that were two years were actually just two years expired at the, at the time. So it shows that in reality, many medications that are expired still have full potency and that you won't necessarily grow a horn in the middle of your forehead as a result of taking an expired medicine. So what do you recommend on how often we replace these? So say you've got ibuprofen and Tylenol and aspirin, and an antibiotic, as well as Pepto-Bismol and Olovera in your chest, if you will, and Loperamide, how often should you replace those? Should it be every six years? Should it be every two years? Should it be every, I mean, two years after the expiration date, six years after the expiration date? How do we help the average person figure this out? This is a certainly a tough thing because it's not. There's nothing that has proven 
that there's a standard for this. And it probably differs with different medicines, but you can certainly tell medicines that have been stored improperly. And you, you want to store medicines properly by putting them in dark, cool, and dry environments. And you'll get the most life out of your medicines by doing that. And if, if you can, you can also keep an eye on the medicines. For example, if you took uh, aspirin, when aspirin goes bad, it has a distinct ammonia smell when you open the bottle. And changes in color of a medicine, I would find that to be a warning sign. Otherwise, between you and I, I would, in normal times, remember that everything that I write about assumes that some disaster has happened and that you no longer have the option of accessing modern medical care or modern medicines, things like that. Well, I mean, I would, in normal times, I would get the medications new medications after the expiration date, but instead of throwing away the old ones, I would keep them so that you would have a stockpile if indeed some major disaster occurs, because that's really what I write about. So maybe get them, try and go to the, when you go to the store, try and get ones with the longest time period before they expire. And then maybe every two years, you replace the simple ones, if you will, two years after there, you've acquired them in a rotating basis. We are talking about the Survival Medical Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on its way. It's in its fourth edition. One of the things you deal with is what happens when there is no power, when you've lost electricity. Now, in this world, do you think we all should have a radio that is solar powered? What do you, what should we have? What's the minimum that we that everyone should have? Well, I think everyone should have solar-powered rechargeable batteries. I think that's important from a medical standpoint. I think it's important to have an entire set of medical supplies, and not only medical supplies, but also I think that it's important to have dental supplies as well, because let's face it, you know, if there's a disaster that takes you away from power, for a week, well, I guess it doesn't matter to have to, to look for dental supplies, but if you have some kind of disaster that, well, takes you away from modern medicine for six months, for more than that, for a year, well, honestly, you've got a problem. And so this is something that is very important to make sure that you have the supplies that are going to be able to last long enough for, for you to stay healthy and keep your, and your family healthy. Let me tell you how we do that. We put our the kit we travel with, the razor, the toothbrush, the toothpaste, etc., in a, if you will, a medical supply area. Then after a certain period of time, it ends up being, we use two years, and I don't know whether that's a right period or not. We bring that, you know, the flosses there and the etc., and we bring it in, use it for travel. So that we've got it in an emergency. So, and and we're as you can tell, we we may be a little crazy because we did live in San Francisco for that period of time of seventeen years, and once a year we would do the three day challenge, if you will. So we got pretty good at cooking for three days and making sure we had uh, canned salmon and can literally cans of everything, and rotated those from a supply area into our uh, daily use. But this is a great book and a very useful book. I do encourage people to get it. 
one of the things that we're always leery of is what happens when we don't have power. So we do have a generator in Cleveland. One of the things, wind will often knock out our local power companies and the generator kicks in. But none of this is geared for what happens when there is no gas. If we had an earthquake here or some other disaster that turned off the gas power and we have a solar power radio, but we don't have a solar power battery recharger. So that's a very useful suggestion. How easy are those to get? No, they're actually all over the place and and they're very useful. They actually have solar panels that are, you can roll them and they're quite portable. So I think that this is something that I think everybody should have. It's interesting how people are considering the various types of equipment and they stay with some of the materials that are actually very modern, like a solar recharger and things like that, very modern. But there are circumstances where, honestly, you're not going to be able to have and even these types of things. So sometimes you really have to talk about relatively primitive situations and maybe some mistakes that you might make when you're putting together a medical kit for a long haul type of issues. And one of these mistakes, I think, is only considering the sexy, sensational stuff that action movie fans concentrate on, let's say, the bleeding control items like tourniquets. Now, these are very important. You should absolutely have them in your medical kit, but there are a lot of other medical problems that can occur that your kit has to be able to handle. I mean, a diverse number of issues, and and a lot of them are very mundane, blisters and minor wounds and soft tissue infections and dental issues. I I go back to dental issues because in situations where there's not a lot of access to modern medicine. Dental issues become a major problem. As a matter of fact, during the Vietnam War, the medics would have daily sick call, and they reported that fully 50% of the uh, soldiers that came in for medical health issues or sick call issues, they came for dental issues. So it's important for the family medic to be able to let's say, fasten a, a loose crown and maybe replace the lost filling, things like that. Also, and we even talk about how to extract the tooth. And these are processes, I mean, that become very important. And it's just really a modern, a very modern thing to try to save every tooth. And and the old days, I'm not talking about Roman times, I'm talking about when you and I were young, they removed teeth regularly for a lot of different issues. And indeed, 90% of dental emergencies probably could be dealt with by extraction in a true off-grid setting. The book is incredibly useful. That's why I've gone long on this podcast. And thank you for sticking with us wherever you download us from, whether it's iHeart or Radio MD. We're terribly appreciative of Radio MD's great engineering staff. The program is brought to you, as usual, by lifesfirstnaturals.com, the makers of maybe two things you should always have in your emergency kit, a true biotic, a probiotic that can help you reestablish the flora in your intestine, and bovine colostrum, something that prevents bloating and leaky gut very effectively from either strenuous exercise or upper respiratory infections, or maybe when you've got bad water. I don't know that it's been tested 
for that in a randomized trial, but it has been in the other things. Go to lifesfirstnaturals.com and see their data. In the longevity playbook, we have not had a section on survival medical needs, and maybe we should get one. But if you want to get one in the meantime, this is a great book, The Survival Medical Handbook by Joseph and Amy Alton, A-L-T-O-N. You can find out more about it by Doom and Bloom, B-L, Doom and Bloom, not gloom, doomandbloom.com. And it does bring up all of the important issues. So I know that one of the things we will do is try and get solar rechargers for our emergency area, as well as look closely. I don't think we've looked closely at the expiration date of some of the medicines. We actually have tourniquets and splints there, as I suggested, and floss, which is very useful for, uh, at least in my mind, for dental extractions. But I did not read. This is a wonderful and a thick book that has all kinds of things in it. And we didn't, I didn't read this section on dental preparedness, if you will. So I'm glad you brought that up. Dr. Alton is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist practicing pelvic surgery. His wife is an advanced practice registered nurse. And thank you both for writing this and for taking the time to help enlighten our audience. We'll be back next week. We hope you are too. This has been 1172. Thanks again.